In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello, everybody. I'm Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and this is a special episode of the Politically Georgia podcast, one focused on hearing the perspectives of Black women. We want to give a special thanks to Renee Gardner on Twitter. This episode is all her idea, and we're making it happen. So first, I want to start by introducing our panelists. First, we have Nicole Carr, an Atlanta-based reporter with ProPublica, where she covers COVID, criminal justice, and racial inequity. But prior to joining ProPublica, Carr spent five and a half years as an investigative reporter with WSB-TV. She's also an adjunct professor at Morehouse College. Hi, Nicole. Hey, hey, hey. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Our second panelist is Don Montgomery. She's a proud graduate of Oglethorpe University who climbed the ranks at the Atlanta Voice. She began as the outlet sports editor, then became managing editor, VP of operations, and she is currently the chief brand officer. Welcome to Politically Georgia, Don. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you. And last but not least, we have Jewel Wicker. She's a former staff writer for the AJC and currently a freelance entertainment and culture reporter who's written for publications like GQ, Billboard, and NPR. Jewel also served as the co-host for Crooked Media in Tenderfoot TV's Gaining Ground, The New Georgia, a podcast about this year's Senate runoffs. Hey, Jewel. Hey, Tia. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you, all of you guys. Um, we're going to get right into it. You know, the runoff for Atlanta's mayoral race is in just about two weeks. And that's when Felicia Moore and Andre Dickens will square off. They do have their first high profile debate coming up. And the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is partnering with the Atlanta Press Club, Georgia Public Broadcasting, the AJC City Hall reporter J.D. Capaluto will be one of the panelists. So we invite everyone listening to this podcast to join us on Tuesday at 7 p.m. on AJC.com or GPB TV or the Atlanta Press Club's Facebook page for that runoff debate. Now, last week, Moore and Dickens were on stage together at a forum hosted by the League of Women Voters in the ACLU of Georgia to lay out their positions for this runoff race. Let's start with hearing a little bit more about them, starting with the front runner, City Council President Felicia Moore. I am a proud HBCU graduate of Central State University in Wilberforce, Ohio, with a degree in communications. I also hold a Master's of Science in Administration from Central Michigan University with a concentration in public administration. I come to running for mayor as having served as a president of my neighborhood association first, then chair of my neighborhood planning unit, delegate to Atlanta Planning Advisory Board, then the great fortune to work as an aide to a council member at City Hall, and then running for council and serving for 20 years. My name is Andre Dickens, and I'm a native of Southwest Atlanta, a neighborhood called Adamsville, uh, born to a single mother, uh, Sylvia Dickens, where I became the first in my family to go to college when I went to Georgia Tech to get a chemical engineering degree. I'm an engineer, so I like to solve problems. And I le led many teams and did uh, very difficult 
build projects as an engineer. And then I became uh, a business owner. I owned a series, a chain of uh, furniture stores across this city uh, where I grew that business to a multi-million dollar business. I'm the father of Bailey Dickens. I'm a deacon of a church, a black Baptist church. I'm also a technology leader at TechBridge, the chief development officer, and I'm an eight-year veteran of the Atlanta City Council. So we've got the city council president in a runoff against one of her fellow city council members. And my question, I'll start with you, Nicole. How do you expect Moore and Dickens to create contrast so voters will be able to pick which one they want to become mayor? So I think that's the challenge. And I know we'll get into challenges in this conversation, but the challenge is becoming uh, this unique character, right? We've always had unique characters <laughs> in these mayoral races. And right now, even though both Moore and Dickens have been around for decades, they know their communities, can people say they know who they are? And and I think the personality part of it is going to have to to shine through somehow for one of them, for people to to latch on, uh, especially when you start looking at turnout. I don't know how turnout is going to differ from what we just saw, but we there's some work to be done there, right? So the pot isn't that large. And so we have to get that kind of larger than life, this is who I am persona going for someone uh, because that is largely, and maybe you guys disagree, I don't know, that's largely missing from this one. This race feels a lot different than the typical Atlanta mayoral race. Yeah. And, you know, we'll get to um, Kasim Reed in a bit, but Jewel, how with Moore and Dickens not being as well known prior to, I would say, running for mayor, and now they're very similar in so many ways. Where would you expect them to create contrast? You know, how are they going to differentiate themselves? I think that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think the thing that I've been paying attention to, and it's not necessarily what they're doing to different, differentiate themselves, but just what I've been seeing on social media in terms of the ways in which their supporters are working to differentiate the two of them. Um, and I, I I think that they've been doing it in a way that I'm not sure leads to any real understanding, like Nicole said, about who they are, right? There are these caricatures online, these sort of social media of who they are in terms of maybe what areas of town support them the best or kind of like very, um, the general politics in which they support and things like that. And I'm just not sure that it's enough for people to get a real sense of who they are generally. Um, like Nicole said, I think that's that's the thing that has really stood out to me is we've kind of seen these caricatures of them on social media. And I don't think that we've, I think that if I'm a person who doesn't really know them and all I'm seeing is kind of what their supporters are saying on social media and these very small social posts or videos or clips, I still don't really have an idea. I don't know if you guys feel that way too, but that's kind of the thing that's really stood out to me the most here. So, Don, what are you hearing um, from voters about what matters to them and therefore what they want to hear from these two candidates in the next couple of weeks? So the, the biggest thing that I'm hearing, and um, this started probably right when I got the opportunity to interview all of the top five um, mayoral candidates before the election, um, is that for Felicia Moore, she has a, a fan base, let's just call it that, a fan base that really is going to show up regardless. So, you know, for them, they don't really necessarily want to make her stand out per se versus like that's their girl and that's who they're going to vote for. Um, I do, I will say for Andre, he actually showed a difference in who he is um, when the announcement came from the gathering spot on last week where he had a lot of the Black creatives, Black entrepreneurs, some of the um, real movers and shakers around the city really support him. Um, and I could hear in his voice the confidence. So for him, it's more confidently speaking and saying that you're ready and prepared for this role. I think that that's been a great thing to kind of see him progress because I honestly feel as if, you know, that night of the election, when he realized he was going to make it to the runoff, it was like, okay, it's go time. Um, but to really hear from, you know, a lot of people on the ground 
in the community, for them, it's really, they want to know what they did while they were on city council. None of them are really, like, they're pointing out to certain aspects and certain things that they were capable of, like, voting on and all of these things. But, you know, Felicia Moore, you were city council president, and a lot of people really didn't know what you were actively doing at that time. Kind of, like, talk about those things. I know she has a press conference this morning that's supposed to roll out her um, 100 days of action. Basically, if she was to become mayor, her first 100 days, what she would do. But, you know, kind of early on, I think that would have been great to kind of hear, even though she was already deemed the front runner for the runoff, per se. So for Andre, I just would like to see him more confidently, you know, step into this position and saying, hey, yes, I'm a true Atlantan, which is what, you know, a lot of people are gravitating towards. But if he is capable of getting, you know, the support from some of the Kasim Reed clan, <laughs> then I think he would be able to try to literally pull this out over Felicia Moore. Nicole, you wanted to jump in? No, I, I was just going to jump in and say that's absolutely what Dickens needs to to pull out of this, right? Mm-hmm. He's going to have to get some of that Reed base, and they are so polar opposite of one another yes. in every in every way. Um, one thing to point out about Moore, and this is just having interviewed her over the years, Moore is very so if if you're a really informed voter, and that's what every candidate would hope for, right, um, then you, you understand some of <clears throat> these initiatives and things that she's worked on throughout the years. The, but the thing that sticks out about more, that at least in, in my experience talking to her, she's very much the out front, I'm going to confront the controversy of the time, and I'm going to take ownership over... Um, I can remember having to reach out to her about signing off on a proposal that would have done away with the ethics board mm. or a, as it stands today. And it would have required uh, basically mayoral consent to appoint these members of the ethics board. Now, that would defeat the whole purpose. Right. Mm. But uh, she had signed off on it. Bottoms had signed off on it. Norwood had going into the 27. This was 2017. Must have been 2017 ish. And she was the first one to admit she didn't know what she signed. <laughs> and that this is totally against everything that I talk about, what I stand for, the, the stuff that I call out. And so she's got that like power in confronting things and calling things out. And I think Dickens is so strong in that, that grassroots kind of air, you know, people know him. They know yeah. him a lot more um than we see from the national stage, right? So much of Atlanta politics, people are looking through the lens of the outside looking in versus the city and the actual voting block. Mm -hmm. And so he knows his city. He knows his city. Um, So So Jewel, I was going to bring you in. We talked about how their supporters are trying to shape them. What do you think are like their Achilles heel? What is the thing that could bring more down? What is the thing that could hurt Dickens over the next two weeks? What are their weak spots? I think, like y'all have said, not reaching out to people outside of the bases that they've already kind of tapped into. I think that's going to be the huge, huge Achilles heel for for one of them if they're not able to do that. Specifically, uh, when we think about just like you said, kind of Andre Dickens as a grassroots uh, kind of person and in the ways in which he's been able to tap into uh, being from Southwest Atlanta and, and really having strong roots there and and the ways in which, you know, Felicia Moore, at least when we see, you know, the social media kind of caricature is she's Buckhead's mayor, kind of that thing, right? And I think that for uninformed voters who have not really, they're not listening to a bunch of podcasts about this. They're not reading a bunch of articles about this. They see the social media posts um, that maybe don't give a whole bunch of context, but give these really kind of quick takes on them. I think if they, if they're not able to reach out beyond kind of those pockets of support, I think that's going to be a huge issue. So I want to play one more clip from that debate of Dickens and Moore they were asked what keeps them up at night. It's the um, steady drumbeat of 
inequity that I keep feeling. Um, that keeps me up at night. I feel like I'm chasing and trying to help the city chase to catch up so that all of us can be able to still live here. Knowing that their bullets are not going to be flying through your window while you're sleeping, uh, it means that you know that you can drive somewhere and stop at a light and not be pulled out and beaten to a pulp and waiting for a long time for someone to come. So you heard one mention inequity and one pretty much mentioned crime. What is your reaction, Nicole? Crime is tricky for more, uh, but I think she's pretty honest about the take. Um, it's tricky because she's recognizing this issue, right? But then there's that relationship with the police union and that that backing that she does have in Buckhead. I, I think she's tried to make it very clear that, you know, I can have uh, and we should demand accountability uh, and be able to call out things. Um, and But she still wants that union support, right? And so the union is just like one way. <laughs> it's like either you're, you're with the police or you're not. And so that's a, it's, it's you know, just puts her in a position to have to explain, well, what, what, what is it? Is it like for the people? Is it for the police? Can those coexist? Uh, and this is a, a tricky time. Um, in equity, I think first thing that comes to my mind, I don't know about you all, but housing is probably the top problem that we have here. And Dickens is absolutely right. We've got to figure out a way where we can all live here. And I think that resonates with people across the board. Don, what do you think about the way each of them chose to answer that question? Um, I have to echo Nicole here. I mean, literally for more, we, those of us who are informed, informed voters, and I will mention, and I've said this throughout my perspectives and anything that I've shared on social media, I live in DeKalb County. I live in Decatur, so <laughs> I don't have a dog in this fight. But based on the coverage that we've done, um, literally um, Felicia Moore she knows who she has supporting her and she's trying to make it to where it is inclusive of all Atlantans. And I have to give her credit for that because she could easily just say she doesn't want to have that type of support, but she also understands how important that support has been for her. Um, for Dickens, that just that's just down home. Like Ben in Atlanta has been through all of the changes. The city's gone through a lot of gentrification in various areas. I've been around Metro Atlanta or the parameter of Atlanta for about 14, 15 years now. And you know that there has been change. I mean, I'm living in a place where I had to go back and forth over whether or not I wanted to renew my lease in Decatur. So it's like, you know, that's something that would awaken anybody that's like, okay, what's his plan for that? So if he wants to differentiate himself from more at this time, he actually needs to kind of like speak more about that and a real concrete plan as to how he can make that happen for all Atlantans. So I want to shift briefly to like the biggest story of election night, which was the fall of Kasim Reed. And let's listen to part of his speech from election night when he was still holding out hope that he could get into the runoffs. We have been in close elections before. Yes. We have won close elections before. And just remember, it's not easy, but the city of Atlanta is worth it. So that was his last public speech. He conceded, you know, with a statement, but we haven't really seen him in official public manner since election night. Um, and we, you know, he might lay low for a while. I wanted to ask you guys, we'll start with you, Jewel. As you were going about the city, you know, were there signs that he possibly wasn't, you know, going to do as well as he and his supporters thought? Did Was there ever a point where you thought he's not doing as well as he thinks he is? I really don't think I thought that until maybe a few days before the election. I really don't think I thought that until we had the People's Town um, confront confrontation. That's when I really started to see the conversation begin to shift. But all of the conversations that I were having before then was almost as if people were assuming that Kasim was a shoo-in, not, ne not necessarily to win, but at least to be in the runoffs. 
So Don, what do you think happened? Like, um, <clears throat> People's Town was literally what what happened to Kasim. I, I feel like um, I'm gonna say this, and it's just, it's just gonna be me keeping it real. Whoever made sure Mrs. Darden was in the room, they knew what they were doing. They understood the assignment <clears throat> because I don't think after all of the debates, the interviews, the conversations that Kasim was having, the fundraisers. I don't think his team really said, hey, what if you get faced with a question from some of your past mistakes outside of the charges, outside of the FBI investigating you, outside of anything else that that was a mistake regarding your leadership? And that would have been one of those key things that I think his team should have better prepped him for, because in that moment, it looked as if he was running away. It looked as if he was scared to answer the question. He did look as if he was sincerely sorry but in his reply it didn't match his his body language and his face okay and that's just from all of the coverage we've done um paying attention to him and that night I will say a couple of days before then I had to record something for the Atlanta Press Club for the Hall of Fame event and I want to say the very first thing I saw when I got over there by the 14th um street bridge I think that is almost near Atlantic Station, but there's just like this huge bridge right there. And um, there was a billboard and it said, anybody but Kasim. Now, that was the first time I had seen it after driving around the city. But when I tell you, I saw that one time, I saw it at least 30 times when I left GPB that particular day. And I think it was after seeing that response to Mrs. Darden and People's Town residents, it was like, okay, whoever was ready to roll this out with, with yard signs, billboards, taking up space on TV, because from what I heard, there was a commercial and things of that nature, like they were going with it. And so I just feel as if I'm with Jewel, there was no... There was no real sign that he was not going to make it into the runoff, per se, that he was almost like literally a shoe in. But that particular night, it was very, very, very mild and very like bleak around that that watch party and just seeing how some of those people were really trying to his supporters were really trying to see how he was going to fare out based off of what had happened a couple of days before that. And, you know, that's what we call an October surprise. I mean, they really got him and his team really couldn't bounce back from that. Nicole, what were you seeing? Well, I was in a space over the summer uh, when polling came up. And I think, and Dickens was looking good. This was a, a summer kind of rooftop in the city, a lot of old Atlanta in there. And I think what we have to recognize in this story of Reed is a story of lost allies, right? So what is not very public and what will not show up in social media in the same kind of way or as loud are the bridges that have been burned in recent years. And they are uh, connected to people who still have the ear of folks on the ground. Uh, you could say two words, right? You could say Shirley Franklin uh, is not to be discounted. And uh, Franklin was in this space that I was in over the summer. <clears throat> the first thing some of my students mentioned, even though we may not be talking about the strong voter block, they noticed who was not at the debate in the AUC. If you go to policies and you're looking at people's town and you're looking at housing and the condition of people who are original to Atlanta, and particularly these black neighborhoods, there were many policies and moves that were not kind to our people. And going through a pandemic and dealing with the fallout of those policies reminds you how important it is that someone is sticking their neck out to make sure you have the basics to survive. And so I think there was a loss of allies and an issue of survival in some of the most important parts of the city as it relates to who was going to turn out and uh, make a difference here. And that has nothing to do, this is no hit on, on this, but outwardly we see a lot of money pumped in, we see celebrities, uh, you know, we can all say none of us on this podcast live in the city limits, right? So we're, we're also folks, you know, weighing in from the outside, which can be a good thing, 
but there was a lot of outside support too, right? How many of us have friends and family outside of Atlanta and they mentioned what they've seen in a reality show or this, this and that. And you're like, yeah, so-and-so lives nowhere near the city. That's Henry County. That's Fayette County. That's, <laughs> you know, and so what's flashy, what's big and what is not always true to what is going to matter when, when it, when it, comes time to uh, cast that ballot. So yeah, Jewel, I want to get you to weigh in. And it brought, it makes me think you all talked about loss of support. We were on a Twitter thread um, where we were talking about, you know, how Kasim Reed was seen as like having all the celebrity and the money and the flash, but it wasn't the same as when he ran last time. And even the caliber of the flash was muted. But, you know, what are you thinking about that? I've also been thinking about like who endorsed him this time around and like what when they were com- when they were commenting about endorsing him what were they signaling in saying so so I like was on a um a Zoom with Lil John about something completely unrelated um and completely unrelated and Lil John in the middle of the interview was like and I don't know about you but I'm voting for Kasim Reed and I was like okay <laughs> and he was like, because I missed the old days of partying and I want to get back to that without being robbed, right? And like <laughs> random, but like also that statement says a lot about kind of this signal of Kasim Reed to the old Atlanta, to the mm-hmm. old days of Atlanta and to like these days that sometimes we put our like nostalgia glasses on and we think back about these old days of Atlanta <laughs> way more fondly than maybe they were. Right, um, exactly. And when I think about the other people, because it wasn't just Lil John. I talked to several um, celebrities, or I've seen several celebrities post on social media, and they, but they've all kind of had that same message of if you want to get back to the old days of Atlanta, you got to vote for Kasim Reed. And I don't think they anticipated that maybe people don't want to get back to the old days of Atlanta. Like they, I don't think they anticipated what that was signaling to people. Um, and I just don't think it had the same power. To to piggyback what Jewel said, yeah, I mean. You got to realize that those those people who want the old Atlanta. Yeah. Nicole said this as well. Don't live in the city limits. Let's talk about that. They weren't going to be able to cast a vote for this for this election. Um, Don't really realize some of the races and majority of us had to face during Buckhead nightlife and some other things that we had to deal with. So old Atlanta. No. But what that signaled for a lot of the more. Um, progressive voters around Atlanta was that you all don't really believe in the future of what's happening in in the city. It's like, okay, we can still probably have that, but we needed new leadership or we needed someone else to come in and say, this is what it looks like now. So um, why, why is everyone still on this golden years of their time? Because for a lot of those people, they benefited um, financially. Now you're not talking about the average Atlantan who, um, would not probably see the money from that. But majority of those people who wanted the old Atlanta, they were they were more than willing to bank on the fact that if Kasim Reed got into office, they would be able to make that money again. I was also going to say it's particularly hard for people, especially even if we're having conversations about crime, right? Like if you have this big time celebrity saying like you can't go anywhere without getting robbed, I just think people have less sympathy and empathy for them, like even if their car got stolen or what have you, and I'm not saying it's right, but people have less sympathy and empathy for you if you're you're rich. You will get a new car tomorrow. I will be sitting here still trying to figure out what I'm gonna do, right? right? And I think especially during a pandemic, especially yes. during a pandemic, yeah, yes. yeah. And I just think when you you kind of make those signals to old Atlanta and to like I want less crime and things like that, you have to think about the connotation of what you're saying and who's saying it. And I'm not sure that they did that. This has been great. We're going to we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to shift a little bit. We're going to talk about when does Stacey Abrams need to announce her political plans? What black voters think of Herschel Walker versus Raphael Warnock? And of course, we're going to talk about black folks and anger over the lack of movement on voting rights. This is a special edition of Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. 
Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm Tia Mitchell, and part of my role in Washington for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is to collaborate every day with fellow insiders Greg Bluestein and Patricia Murphy on The Jolt. That's our political newsletter that comes out every weekday morning. We consider it the most detailed tip sheet you can find on Georgia politics, and you can only get it in your email inbox if you subscribe to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And one of the things that you would have seen if you subscribe to the AJC and the Jolt are rumors about Stacey Abrams. So last week, there was this Newsweek profile and it quoted anonymously someone who said they were close with Stacey Abrams. They said she plans to run for governor in 2022, which there's a lot of speculation about, and said she planned to use that to kind of catapult to running for president either in 2022, 2024, or 2028. So my question to our panelists, we'll start with Don. You know, do you think it's time for her Stacey Abrams to say what she wants to do, or can she wait a few more months? I, 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 I'm going to need Sister Stacey Abrams to go on here and say what she's going to do. Um, <laughs> and I'm saying that as 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 a huge, and I, I'll, I'll put this out there, as, as a supporter of her work. Um, with voter suppression, voter voter rights, all of all of the things that her and her organizations have been able to do to help make Georgia either blue or purple, however you want to see it, I really feel like at this time, her waiting to say something is really having us all on edge. Like we're like, okay, we know who we want to support. We just need to know how we need to mobilize and do better this, this go round. Um, Because we know that the laws are going to really fight against, you know, a lot of people around the state of Georgia. So how can we as a collective support her and make sure that she's going to have the turnout, the, the, the way that she needs to have that. Um, I feel like the discourse that's getting ready to probably start happening with the Republican party is going to fail better in for her this go round. And I just feel as if if she could just say, you know, yes, I'm gonna run, <laughs> I feel like the rest of us would just be able and willing to do whatever it takes to get her elected this go round. Nicole, do you think it could backfire? The rumor is that Abrams might be waiting until, you know, the early 2022 um but, you know, you started seeing Michael Thurman throw some stuff out there. And do you think it could backfire? Or do you think that the field will wait for Stacey Abrams? They'll wait for her. Uh, so one thing Abrams has always done is, um, well, she's never talked. I should talk about what she's not done. She never talks. Uh, there are a lot of people, as we like to say, you know, who like to keep her name in their mouths. She does not respond. There were, if we go back a couple of years, you know, after the gubernatorial loss, it was her own party that was like, hey, you need to get out there and challenge Purdue. She wasn't gonna do it, she has a plan. She's probably one of the most strategic, one of the smartest interviews yes. I've ever had. I, mm-hmm. she, she's like an encyclopedia. She's off, off the top of her head. She can recall. She can tie things together. She is, she is strategic and stealth. I will mm-hmm. say that. And so uh, whether you know it was on purpose to have someone in the camp drop a gem here or, or, or do something there um, to get people talking, like she really... Everybody wants to know what she's going to do. So she doesn't have to do anything because the field will wait. 
Um, and no one, not even a Thurman, as, as much as he can be respected and people know who he is, he's not going to draw the same type of attention or anticipation or, you know, people aren't going to be anxious over the next announcement. Yeah. So Abrams has that, uh, whether you're looking at her from, you know, Washington State, Washington, D.C. or or Auburn Avenue here in Atlanta. So. Nah, I don't think she has to do anything, but just do what she's going to do when she's going to do it. And so while we're waiting on Stacey, you know, there's also just been so much focus on Georgia in particular, you know, after the runoffs, after Biden carried the state. And of course, looking for toward our midterms with Raphael Warnock back on the ballot, Mm -hmm. of course, the governor's race on the ballot. So. We've got Herschel Walker. He did not show up to a debate with the other high profile Republican candidates for the Senate just over the weekend, but he's got Trump's endorsement. And every time a poll comes out, he's in the driver's seat. Do you think that Herschel Walker can get enough black people to support him to get him to 50% versus Raphael Warnock? Particularly, I think they're looking for black men who we know are more susceptible to supporting Republicans. So I will, I, I will say that, um, you know, the Atlanta Voice was invited to an event that the National RNC uh, came to the state of Georgia to open up their, their campaign headquarters, basically, is what it is. It's like their campground. Um, and one of the things that uh, Martel Sharp, as well as Itori Muntuan, saw there was an abundance of Black men present um, so what I will say is their vote is up for grabs at this point. Um, I will say that his the name Herschel Walker resonates from sports solely. You know, this is that guy who made it, who looks like us, who did the thing we couldn't do. And oh, wow, he's running for a Senate, too. But I will say to to, to Nicole's point earlier in this podcast, you want to understand you really want to understand and know that more informed voters will, will will really see his endorsement from Trump as literally like, that's not the route that you want to go. Like, that's not what you need. Look at his experience. Does he have experience? Um, look at his ability. If he doesn't have experience, will he be able to step up and say, hey, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm going to figure it out. You know, something that Warnock and Ossoff did was that they spoke on things that they were capable of doing. They got in there and they did it. So to me, it's literally going to be upon, you know, the Democrats of the state to really say, listen, we know you may like Herschel Walker and you may want to support him because you recognize him and you know he's a Heisman Trophy winner and all of these these grand, shiny things. But look at who his main support comes from. Look at what how detrimental that could be to Georgia state politics as a whole if you lend your vote over to that side and not really give someone else a chance to really come back in to do more great work. So, Nicole, do you think Herschel Walker can get away long term with like not having a platform without showing up? Like how long until Republicans demand more? I think internally they are demanding more. But this, you know, if this is successful to any degree, it's the signal that if you want to survive in this party, you need Trump. Right. So this is this is more of an internal game, I think, than it is uh uh, a Warnock Walker kind of game. I, I, I echo what Don says in, in terms of Ossoff and Warnock having shown you um, h- how they planned to deliver and then executed and delivered on, on what was talked about in a policy sense on the campaign trail. Uh, the minute Walker does accept this invitation or whatever to speak, what is he going to say? We haven't we haven't heard a thing. And so if you are going into this informed and yes, we do have that that traditional um, black men veering toward the Republican Party. I laughed one time I had a a news manager in a discussion uh, say, you know, I think you need to broaden your perspective on things. It was a political discussion. I'm like, (laughs) ma'am, not only have I lived all around this world and overseas, you want to talk about someone with uh, black people, black Republicans in their family? and Democrats and their family, and who I was referencing were the black men who lived in rural areas in our family, who, I'm gonna go ahead and say, who went for Trump. 
on certain, you know, and it had, so we'd be ignorant to say we're not out there. Exactly. In that way. Mm -hmm. Um, However, what's needed at this time during this pandemic and and in terms of policy and who has delivered uh, in terms of things that uh, mean putting a plate of food on your table or making sure a roof stays over your head or a, a, a tax credit or whatever, we, we've seen something tangible on one end. So he's going to have to talk at some point. And when he talks, the question is, is whatever he has to say going to be enough for people to care? I keep going back to this pandemic. We are in different times. They call for different strategy because people are hurting. So all of you guys in your own, you know, right, Jewel with the podcast, um, Don at the Atlanta Voice being the Black press, so a Black perspective. Nicole, you've been covering COVID, but the racial element of COVID. And I, I bring that up because I want us to focus a little bit on Black women, Black women being such an important voter block in Georgia, Black women being the backbone of the Democratic Party. So I'll start with you, Jewel. You know, in your research, gaining ground and otherwise, what has it taught you about the impact Black women are going to continue to have on politics in Georgia? You know, I think when we did Gaining Ground, the very first episode we did looked at the power of Black women um, from varying perspectives in the Senate runoffs, right? So we looked at um, Congresswoman Lucy McBeth and Representative Sally Hutchinson, but we also looked at Nse Ufad and obviously Stacey Abrams. And, you know, I think especially around that time, we were seeing all of these like, if this is going to happen, it's going to be because of Black women kind of national stories. Um One, I don't think that was a new story. I think that was a story that if you had been paying attention to what was going on here in Georgia, uh, that wasn't a story that we all just learned about in December and January. And two, I mean, obviously that continues to be the story, even when we think about, uh, as Don calls it, the October surprise, right? Like the ways in which Black women are shaping elections here in Georgia and in Atlanta specifically is is not a surprise. Um, But I think it's something that maybe people... We've been having this conversation. We've mentioned this a lot on the, on this podcast, specifically how just because it's now the national conversation doesn't mean it hasn't been the local conversation for a very long time. And I think that's what we've seen this year as a whole when it comes to black women and the ways in which they uh, from the voting in from from being candidates themselves and from being organizers, um, the ways in which they influence the local and state elections here. Don, what do you think like the mainstream media, even the AJC gets wrong or maybe doesn't always give a, a the full perspective when it comes to black women in politics? Um, I just feel like um, it's just like a national touch point. It's not from a local viewpoint, like what Jewel just mentioned, um, in making sure that the women who are in the grassroots, who are doing the work. I mean, I I was just thinking in my head while Jewel was talking about how, you know, it might be a national conversation, but locally we know who the players are and who are actively doing this work for, you know, voters' rights and voter suppression, against voter suppression. But there's this song, you know, Mississippi Mass Choir, I'm Not Tired Yet, you know? (laughs) And it's like, it just keeps going in my head because just for Black women in general, like when is it going to be off of us to actually really just be voters, really just be, you know, we're, we're more informed. And I feel like a lot of times we're more educated in certain issues as well. But I feel as if this is a lot to kind of put on us as a whole consistently every year it's us or every four years it's us to pull this thing out. And then when it's time to really recognize those people who have done it, like, can you figure out ways to put them in leadership positions? So I just feel as if not just from a national conversation, just really paying attention to the local um, voices and communities who are actively doing this work and really giving them more recognition, like talking more about the New Georgia Project, talking more about other organizations that are actively doing things. Um, And I feel like that's kind of one of the things that the Atlanta Voice has been prideful on making sure that we're doing as well. So I do appreciate what the AJC is doing, but I do feel like that that is somewhat of a disconnect there. I was just going to add, I think I I didn't get to speak on the Stacey Abrams question, but that's what I think about when I think about that question, right? Like Mm -hmm. if 
we've learned anything from this specifically about Stacey Abrams is that we at least can give her the grace to see the plan play out before we decide. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right? Like we can at least <laughs> wait and see, right? Because yeah. I think we we've done a lot of judging before the plan is executed before uh-huh. and it has uh-huh. not necessarily worked out for us as media. And so I I think that's my thing with Stacey Abrams is she has um worked up enough uh, I, I think we we should give her the benefit of the doubt more, and I think we should give her a little more grace to see the plan be fully executed before we decide whether or not the plan was effective. And I wanted to bring you in, Nicole, because when we were talking about, and I think you know you're right as far as like Stacey Abrams being the the example of like the weight on black women, the expectations on black women. And um, Nicole, you've covered COVID and a lot of the issues with parents and things like that. And I wanted to ask you, you know, because it all, a lot of the coverage focuses on white families and white parents and their concerns. And I wanted to give you time to ask, to talk about, you know, being fully aware of like concerns of communities that perhaps don't always get the attention, the pandemic just being one example of that. Sure. So, you know, my first piece for ProPublica was unexpectedly about COVID in schools uh, because I spearheaded and made the decision even when my husband wasn't initially on board in the first 24 hours to pull the kids out of the school system. Uh, because of what I'd witnessed going into the school year. So they didn't make it to the first day of school um, in Cobb County schools. And I'll go ahead and put it out there because we know the dynamics that are playing out on the school board. Uh, And while that decision was very much about safety concerns at the time, I've I've realized over, over time and what we're seeing, and it's evolving into a larger political conversation, right, with school boards and and um, issues that are becoming the platforms of, of, of the Republican Party, right? It's not just about COVID. We're talking like CRT became a thing, right? And it started creeping up. I think if people were really paying attention to when the 1776 Commission was developed in response to 1619, although we were at the, the height of COVID at the time, and it was very much a survival mode type thing, but in terms of this buildup to CRT and this issue that that has seeped into school systems, um, this is is by design and not by by mistake at all. And it is um, highly manufactured. And I'll say that as an informed parent, there is nothing that my children have been taught in the public school system that point to anything uh, that suggests. Uh, kids are confronting some sort of of truth they don't need to hear or a false narrative about the country or a message of hate against one race or another. It's just, it it's not a thing. It is not a thing, but we are very close to not a thing becoming uh, a book being pulled off a shelf in the library that your child attends. So no, I, a person like myself, or even as a reporter covering these education issues, and I think local media is starting to, to come to terms with this, particularly when it comes to Cobb, you got to recognize it's not even an elephant in the room. I mean, we are honoring uh, the Confederate flag in school board meetings. We are silencing black school board members, one of which has the only scientific mind in the bunch who cannot get a conversation on the agenda about a public health once in a lifetime pandemic. Like, tell me, make that make sense. No one says you have to agree one way or the other about how to move forward, but how do you have elected officials who represent the majority of a a county not be able to get something on the agenda and not recognize that rules had changed to ensure that you needed a majority to do that. Well, who is the majority on the board versus what you see on the population? They're white Republican men. You can't ignore race in this. It's not a both sides kind of thing, but like we're dealing with race. We're dealing with race here and we need to be more explicit about what we're seeing because in hindsight, we're always really good in this country, right? About atoning for things decades later, right? 
We're going to talk about, I, I tell this to my students in a social justice journalism class, I make them parallel news coverage from when someone was alive, when they're living, and then when they perish. So show me Muhammad Ali and his take on Vietnam in real time, and then show me how it's covered decades later. Show me how Dr. King is covered in real time, and then go to the celebration off Auburn Avenue and watch the same legacy outlets cover him in death. We're really good about doing that in this country and really uncomfortable and feeling like, and eh, we're not being fair to someone if we start talking about this now. Well, the moment is now. We have no time to waste. We have to confront who we are and what we're doing now. And so, no, you're never going to see someone who looks like me and be interviewed as the suburban mom. I, I look around. I think that's what I am. I'm, I'm in, you know, pushing the SUV with the three kids, going to the, all the activities and making sure you have a diverse set of friends and that you're, you know, you know who you are, where you come from, all of these things. What makes me not the suburban mom? Yet all the coverage I see across the country, you'd show me someone who looks like me who's suburban mom. Don? We, oh, I'm sorry. sorry. I went off on a tangent. Yeah, I just, <laughs> no, no, I, I, I agree. You know, being in DeKalb County, you know, one of the things that I've had a hard time with um, the school system, you know, even before, you know, critical race theory became a thing um, was the various things that our kids have to deal with in schools, our kids, the black children, especially black boys. Um, I know for my sons, um, it was a very hard time with my eldest son who actually now lives outside of Tampa. Um, and he was put in a charter school and now he is doing great. But the Cab County school system was really not a good place for him. Um, my 10 year old son is in private school. And the only time that we have really had to face anything dealing with race would be because of some of the things that the students were saying to him. Um, and it's like, you know, he, he comes home and he's like, hey, mom, such and such said this to me. And my response was this, you know, and those are the conversations. When you talk about critical race theory, it's not necessarily being talked about in the, the classrooms. And like to Nicole's point, we're dealing with this at home. Like we're dealing with this and, you know, and telling our children how to show up, how to be, how to exist in their own black skin. So I just feel as if there there's a there's a different agenda there. And a lot of times, anytime that I hear about CRT, I feel like, okay, what's the distraction here? What 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 are they distracting us from to keep us, you know, fighting to keep our books in, in these classrooms or in these libraries and things of that nature, which we're going to do. But there's something else out there that they're trying to deter us from seeing. So I just feel like I wanted to, you know, echo Nicole's point here, um, you know, when they are interviewing certain people or mothers or parents or what have you in regards to these things, they're leaving all they're leaving a lot of us out of this conversation, which isn't fair, but it's but it's set up by design. Yeah. And just ask for the evidence. Right. So we're all journalists here. And mm -hmm. my, the most basic questions are not being asked. It's very much a uh, so and so said and so and so doesn't exactly. agree type coverage. And it's not nuanced enough and it's not fair to our audiences to be that way. When I think of CRT, I think of Governor Kemp. And I'll tell you why briefly. And I know we have to move on. But when we repealed the citizens arrest law in Georgia, let me tell you how that was an example of subscribing to CRT. When the governor signed that and repealed that, he essentially made comments that lended themselves to saying, this is something that should not be on the books, that, that is archaic and not representative of Georgia today. Okay, so students, here's a lesson. Citizens arrest law evolved from a law that allowed overseers or really anyone white to lynch an enslaved person to capture, to kill when they were where they weren't supposed to be. It evolved into something that is now being used as a defense in a trial we're seeing uh, unfold right now. And the McMichaels and Bryans are totally right. It was on the books in Georgia that I could take matters into my own hands and do what we witness before us in, in what became leaked cell phone video. So to recognize that it was within a structure of something that evolved from something at, at, at the, the beginning of our country, 
and it's evolved into this and it's still on the books and it's used as a defense for what we saw happen, play out in modern time, that's how systems work. But that's not being taught in schools. Like a concept like that's not being taught in schools. It would be right in law school where you'd say, where does the citizens arrest law in these Southern states come from? Well, students, this is how it was on the book in 18 whatever, and this is what it is now. Like that's an example of systems and CRT. And just to waste time, well, I'll stop myself there in case I... We'll do a CRT. Well, that's a whole different going, pod- yeah, yeah, that's a whole different podcast. And hopefully we'll be back and we'll be able to talk about it. I do want to switch gears one last time to our final topic. And that's on the voting rights bills that have stalled in Congress, mainly because Senate Republicans are using the filibuster to block their progress. But the question is, is it President Biden's fault? You know, he has not been a leader, I think, on voting rights protection at all. I think that at most, you know, I think he gave a really good speech related to that. Um, But we need more than speeches. Latasha Brown is co-founder of Black Voters Matter. This is a little bit more from her. The bottom line is SB 202, which is the Georgia law, has been enacted that we're seeing these laws pass in legislatures all over across the nation. You know, I am waiting and have still not seen where he has come out and made a commitment, just as he did on the infrastructure bill, to say, I'm going to use the full weight of my office as president to deliver on voting rights. This should be a layup. And this is Brown. She's doing an interview on the Black News Channel last month. And we're going to hear just a little bit more from her comments that day. Once again, we're seeing Black voters be be a sacrifice in this process. What we're seeing is we're not hearing um, the, the fact that we're this late, that here we are in October and we still don't have voting rights. I do think that that's indicative of a larger issue, which is why I, myself and others are really putting pressure to say that we've got to have voting rights now. No, we can no longer wait. So Latasha Brown is one of those organizers who was very involved, very pivotal, particularly in the Senate runoffs that Democrats won. And she's expressing a lot of frustration and said it could affect how hard she works in the midterms. I wanted to ask you guys, we'll start with Jewel. You know, are you hearing that Black women just in general are starting to get frustrated over voting rights? Or do you think there's more patience than um, than Brown? I don't think there's more patience. And listening to those sound bites, what came to my mind was that there might be more urgency now, but this is a lot of what they were saying in January, right? When when they when they were ha- when we were having these conversations earlier this year, it was we need more than just a speech. We need actual action. We need you to actually put you know actual action behind this so that we can make sure that uh, voting rights are not in jeopardy for you know marginalized people throughout this country. That's not that different than what they were saying. I mean, obviously now it's a little more urgent because months have passed and we haven't seen much action in that regard. But I think they've been trying to sound the alarm that we might be here for months. Don, what do you think, what needs to be done? You know, because Democrats are saying we're trying, we, we, we're serious about it, just the filibuster. But what do you think needs to be done to send that message, particularly to Black women? She's, Latasha Brown said it. We need President Biden to really have a backbone. I'm sorry, you know, he, you know, by the grace of God, got in office, honestly, in my opinion, um, and thank God he did. Um, But at this point, if he could really use his, use his power to really say and go against, you know, a state who really is suppressing voter rights and all of the, the liberties that we are trying to enjoy, that people have continuously fought for, who have continuously died for. We don't need no more people dying for the right to vote. We don't need no more people dying to make sure that their voices are being heard. Um, but if he could really step up into his power and say, listen, I'm going to tackle this and I'm going to really face the state of Georgia, because you can use these big words as outrageous and atrocity. But if you're not actively coming to the state and telling the governor, listen, I, we can't do this. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make this make this happen. Then I feel like you're putting it yet again on the back of the, the Democratic Party. And I just feel like there are a lot of um, constituencies um, as well as informed voters 
who do not feel confident in the Democratic Party at this point. It's almost like, you know, that emoji with the shrug hands, like almost darn if you do, darn, darn if you don't. Um, but if we have a leader that says this is not right, this is what we're going to do to challenge it, this is what we're going to do to stop it, then I feel as if that's what's going to awaken the Democratic Party as a whole and really kind of get everyone back on board to really being proud to, you know, either vote one way or the other. I know that there are a lot of people who don't even really um, identify with the party and they just vote based on issues, really, and based on who is speaking to what they need and want. But at this point in time, Biden is losing a lot of support from black women in general because we're like, OK, so what you going to do? We got you in there. What you going to do? Like, we're tired. So um, I do feel like there's a lot of fatigue in this. But for people like Latasha Brown, I just I need her to be motivated. And I need her to we need to find a way to support her in so many ways, whether that's letting her be heard on some of these issues, um, giving her some airtime on something, writing up stories on what her and her organization are doing then I feel like if we do more of that to support her, then that should reignite her energy to want to mobilize and organize our communities. I also wanted to add that I think sometimes there's a disconnect between politicians and, and the people that they are, you know, are in, in office to serve and that politicians still think that just coming out and saying something is outrageous or racist is enough. And I think, (laughs) you know, Americans are deserving more or they're demanding more is what I should say. Americans are demanding more from their politicians. Now it is not enough for you to come out and say this, uh, you know, voting policy is racist or it's steeped in racism or this is outrageous or it's harmful. Okay. Now what? Right. And I think that is where the disconnect is, is that politicians are still on that first step of being like, this is outrageous or this is racist. And Americans are saying, okay, now what? (laughs) And I don't think they've gotten to the second step yet of being like, oh, I thought coming out and saying this was, you know, strong. I I think that there's a strong disconnect there. Yeah. And and the biggest thing with that disconnect is, is that for black women like Latasha Brown, if she's out here and she's she's using her words, she's using her platform, she's doing the things to organize, to create the call to action to then you see the action. It's like, yeah, I'm going to challenge this politician who you're you're are you're like at the highest of the high here and you should be um, creating some type of change. You should be saying this is what I'm going to do in order to make this not happen or in order to stop this. And literally like whatever the fallout may be, I feel like a lot of times a lot of politicians are really looking at the overall view as to, okay, well, if I got to fight Georgia, then I'm probably going to have to fight Texas. I'm probably going to have to fight, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like there's going to be, there's going to be a fight across the board, but the words are not matching their actions. And at this point, that's what she wants to see. That's what she wants. That's what we all want. And Nicole, I'll give you a quick final, final comment. What do you think the risk is if Democrats don't get it right on voting rights going into the midterms? Oh, I think 2024 is the risk. So we're already to the next presidential election, like right now. (laughs) I know we're talking, you know, there's midterms and there's definitely the general election, but we're Mm -hmm. the, so the wheels are spinning that who will be next and, and, and in the white house and both parties have an identity issue. Um, I'll just, I'll bring the conversation back to journalists and in covering uh, all of this, I think we just need to do a really good job of contextualizing how we got here from point A to point B. Um, I saw a lot of kind of uh, interesting reporting when it came to where Georgia elections officials stood on SB 202 and all of that. Not a lot of journalists who were sitting in committee hearings at the state capitol the week of Christmas last week and and heard um you know secretary raffensberger kind of lay the 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 groundwork or the framing for that the week of Christmas because nobody i mean nobody was there <laughs> so but there was a lot of coverage about what he didn't believe in or what he wouldn't do and i'm like well let's let's back it up because a lot of this he helped frame very early on as we were saying, there are no issues with absentee ballots or the process or or all of that. And so I don't I don't think journalists did such a good job of saying 
this is how we got to the structure of this. And this is who it involved. And, and it, this is what it means. And this is what it doesn't mean. I, I mean, you do have some good ones out there, but I'm talking overall. And it, it, some of that has to do with people being taken off of beats. You know, you've got folks covering COVID in one breath and the, I mean, the, the, Policies and politics right now take nuance, which means an investment in in the newsrooms. And I'll say this finally, and I know we've got to go, but in terms of um, the energy behind Black women or what, it's not going anywhere ever, and it never has in this country. And the first thing I kind of think about is Ida B. Wells in the Women's Suffrage March, right? Black women at that time knew we were not marching for ourselves because in order to have a place, you needed white women to get there first. (laughs) So, sister, I'm going to help you get there, knowing that this won't be any immediate advantage for me or that I won't see the payoff, but but I'm playing the long game. And I know if I'm going to get to that ballot box, I got to get you there first. And so... The energy, you know, whatever, tiresome work for democracy. The energy is not going anywhere. Historically, it's never gone anywhere. Uh, it is the same uh, story. I go back to Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. And that is the truth for the history of this nation. Well, I want to thank you ladies so much. We have Nicole Carr, ProPublica, Jewel Wicker, a freelance journalist, and Don Montgomery of the Atlanta Voice. We thank you all so much for joining Politically Georgia. I want to give a shout out to my colleague, Greg Bluestein for allowing us to take over the podcast. Um, now, please, the best way to grow this podcast is to rate us, hopefully five stars, review us, share, subscribe, and follow on wherever you get your podcast so we can grow the audience and continue to bring you Politically Georgia for free. Our City Hall team will be back later this week to break down what the candidates said in Tuesday's debate, which you can also see on AJC.com. And Greg and Patricia will return on Friday for their recap of the week. I'm Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thank you so much for listening to Politically Georgia. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.